Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Last week, someone asked me if I believed in the sovereignty of God. My simple answer to her was, yes, of course. And additionally, I said to her that I don't understand how you can be a Christian and not believe in the sovereignty of God. I wasn't asked that question because she was curious to know if I believed in God or if I believed in a God who is sovereign. She actually asked me that question in order to understand where I stood in line with Reformed doctrine. Now, as much as I would love to explore Reformed doctrine with you during our main weekly services together, I think systematic approaches to doctrine like that are best left, taught, and learned together in a different setting that is more conducive to constructive argumentation and dialogue. Okay, so now that I've lost some of you with all those big words, let me step back for a moment and speak in a little bit of a easier-to-follow way. I want to explore the sovereignty of God. In the journey that we are starting today in the book of Daniel, I want each of us to have a keen awareness of the sovereignty of God. All of history, it has been said, is his story. God's sovereignty is found not only in Daniel, but in the entirety of God's word. It is found in the entirety of God's word, and it is found in the entirety of your story. It is no accident that you are here today. It is no coincidence that the events of your life have brought you to this point, right here and right now, for such a time as this. We sit here today, hopefully on the tail end of a worldwide pandemic, but at the beginning of a war in Europe. It seems like the only generations of Americans that didn't really know war firsthand were maybe the couple generations before and a generation after the Civil War. Just in my lifetime, there was the end of the Cold War, the Persian Gulf War, 9-11, the War on Terror. Those were wars that America was directly involved in and sort of still are. Now we sit and wait to see what's going to come of this war in Ukraine. We can sit back and wring our hands and wonder what the future will hold. And we ought to make plans. We ought to have contingencies. But in the midst of all of the unknown that you and I face, we are able to press forward in hope because we believe in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God simply means that God is sovereign. Don't you hate it when people use the same word to define the word they're trying to explain? It's the worst. Sovereign means supreme power and authority. It means God is not dependent on us for his power or authority or reign in this world. He is in control whether or not we are on his side. While God is not dependent on us, he nevertheless acts in our world. He is independent, but he is involved. He has all authority, but he is active. He has all the power, but he is present and patient. The book of Daniel is an explicit example of God working in the affairs of this world in order to display his sovereignty. If you are struggling today, in the face of a worldwide chaos, turmoil, if you are struggling today in the face of personal problems, fighting without and fear within, as the Apostle Paul says, external pressures, internal insecurity, let this study of God's word open your heart to trust the Lord once again. 
Maybe for some, you need to let God's word open your heart to trust the Lord for the first time. Spirit, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. Make us a people who trust you and you alone. Let us be a people who look to Christ alone for salvation and security. Comfort us, teach us, equip us. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, now that I've got the intro and the conclusion out of the way, let's get to the meat of God's word. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. I apologize if you don't like how I said any of those names. What we're going to do today in our time in Daniel is take a look in the background. The first thing that I want us to notice is that this book is written for Jews and Gentiles. Many well-meaning Christians think that the Old Testament was written for the Jewish people. Maybe you've heard it said, or you were taught that the Old Testament is for Jews and the New Testament is for Christians. But that is absolutely false. Let me argue my point just from the Old Testament vantage point. I'll give a general reason why and then a specific example. God has always intended for his people to proclaim his word to the world. Yes, the Old Testament was given to the Hebrew people, but it wasn't just for them. Through it, they were to be a light to the Gentiles, displaying the holiness of God through their own lives as they obeyed God's word. Isaiah 42.6, Isaiah 49.6 are simple examples of this. Now for the specific example that I'm going to give you, this book, Daniel, was originally written using both Hebrew and Aramaic. Certain parts are written in Hebrew, certain parts are written in Aramaic. Why? Because it was an open letter to the nations testifying to the sovereignty of God in a foreign nation. So much of what God does in Daniel's life is a picture, an illustration, an example to the nations of God controlling events that have no other legitimate explanation other than the plans and purposes of God being accomplished in the world at large. Its events are undeniably supernatural. Some of this book is written in Hebrew, like the vast majority of the rest of the Old Testament. 
Why? Because it was an open letter testifying to the sovereignty of God to the nation that has just been conquered, Israel, God's people, the nation who is dealing with the consequences of its rebellion toward the God who had delivered them from Egypt and given them the promised land and provided them with great wealth and prosperity and peace. God honors the man and the woman who are faithful to him. Don't take that statement too far to mean that if you're faithful to God, then he'll give you all the learning and understanding and skills and position and prominence and power that this world has to offer. I'm hesitant to even say that God honors the man and the woman who are faithful to him because many in the church and around the church and in the name of the church have hijacked what it means to be honored by God. To be honored by God, as I alluded to last week, and hopefully we saw a bit in Psalm 41, to be honored by God is to know and experience the grace and mercy of God that is found in Jesus Christ. To live without fear of what may come my way because I know whom I have believed in. And I'm persuaded that he is able and sufficient to sustain me no matter what trials or temptations or tragedies may come. To be honored by God is to persevere until the end because he never leaves nor forsakes his own. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. My God is with me. My God is sufficient. My God is sovereign. And the same God who is sovereign to accomplish his purposes is the same God who is sovereign to keep his promises. The second thing I want us to notice in the background of Daniel is that God keeps his promises. God will accomplish his purposes and keep his promises. Now, one of the promises that he made to the people of Israel, part of his covenant with them, was that if they were going to forsake him and run to worship other gods and fail to obey his commandments and refuse to trust his word and keep it, then he would spit them out of the land that he gave to them. The Lord is a God who gives and takes away. Sometimes it is for purposes and reasons that are unclear to us. Sometimes it is for explicitly clear sins or sovereign purposes or both. Now, it doesn't take long for those of us on this side of Israel's history to understand why these events in the first couple verses of Daniel have taken place. God made it explicitly clear to Israel that if they continued to disobey God in the promised land, he would pluck them out of it. Deuteronomy 28 is a really long chapter. In the first 14 verses, Moses is relaying what the Lord has told him about the blessings they can expect for obedience to God's word. 14 verses of blessings. Then the next 54 verses, 54 or pages of warning to Israel about the curses they can expect for disobedience. Later tonight or this week, go and read all of Deuteronomy 28. These things weren't a secret. I'll just read a few select verses to give us a taste. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you, Verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, 
because of the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Verse 63, And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. How do you think you'd do if you became a king or a queen at age eight? That's how the story of Josiah begins. His father and grandfather were wicked kings. There were a lot of bad examples in his life. But one day the book of the law was found. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five, first five books of the Bible, the books that Moses wrote, they were found in the temple. They had been lost, misplaced, forgotten, in all likelihood, for a couple hundred years. Now remember, it would be another 2,000 years before the printing press was invented. So there wasn't a copy of these books that could just be ordered on Amazon and delivered the next day. What may have been the only copy had been forgotten and lost. Well, they happened to stumble across it when they were cleaning out the temple one day. And they read it to the king. They brought it to him and said, hey, look what we found. And the king's like, read it. And they read it. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. That's just a way of showing how sad, upset, concerned he was. They probably read to him, Deuteronomy 28. And he was like, oh, snap, that's not good. What's going to happen to us? Now, if you're not familiar with the history of Israel during the time of the kings, let me give you the maybe 60-second version and then pick back up with Josiah. The first king of Israel was Saul. But he didn't last very long and was unfaithful to God. So God chose David to replace him. David, a man after... God's own heart. David became king around 1000 BC. It's just a simple, easy way to kind of remember when this happened. His son Solomon became king after him, and Israel enjoyed rest and prosperity and peace. Everything was great, but then Solomon's son was not nearly as wise as his father, and the kingdom was split into two. So now instead of there just being Israel, there was Israel and Judah. Two kingdoms. Israel was the northern kingdom and Judah was the southern. But in 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered Israel, the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel fell apart. The people were exiled. Why? Because they worshiped other gods, because they did not obey the God who had brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. That happened in 722 BC. So when Josiah comes around a hundred years later as king of Judah, and that's why in our text in Daniel, his son Jehoiakim is called king of Judah. He would have been very familiar with what happened to the northern kingdom, to Israel. He saw the effects of what God did to the northern kingdom, how it was conquered, desolate, barren. So they read to Josiah the books of Moses. And he says, all those curses... We deserve those. Judah, the southern kingdom, my kingdom, is destined for the same fate as the northern kingdom. 
So he inquires of a prophetess in Jerusalem. He wants to know, what is God going to do because of all the disobedience since the end of Solomon's reign? All the neglect of God over the past 300 years. And so she says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. That was not a positive message. Now the good news, though, for Josiah was that because of his response to God's word, when it was read to him, how he humbled himself and inquired of the Lord, because he believed the Lord and followed the Lord, God wouldn't bring judgment during Josiah's lifetime. So how long do you think God waited to bring the judgment after Josiah died? Anybody know? Josiah died in 609 B.C. Daniel chapter 1 picks up in 605 B.C., so four years. Jehoiakim, who verse 1 mentions as being the king of Judah, was Josiah's son. He wasn't the first king after Josiah. The first king only lasted like three months. Um, yeah, it just didn't go very well. It didn't go really well for Jehoiakim either. Suffice to say, it didn't take long for the disaster to come. Now, I bring up the story of King Josiah because I think that it's an important part of Daniel's background and something that can be easily overlooked when we talk about the sovereign way in which Daniel and his friends enter the scene. For at least the last half of Josiah's reign, ever since the book of the law was found and read to Josiah, it was then read to the leaders and people of Judah. Josiah brought the word of God to all those around him when the word of God came to him. I've already encouraged you later to read Deuteronomy 28. I'd also encourage you to read 2 Kings 23. You can read about all the reforms that Josiah made throughout the land. It started with him, and he extended it as far as he was able. So certainly then, it included those in his household, those in the royal family, and those in the nobility. And what is the background of Daniel and his three friends? Verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1 that we read. Then the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So, who do we find was among those of the royal family and nobility? Verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So as we read and study the book of Daniel, it would be be good for us to understand that Daniel's faith stemmed from what he learned and was taught and was modeled for him while he was still in Judah, before he was taken captive to Babylon. One of the concerns that I have as we study through this book is that we're only going to interject and pull out moral lessons to live by. And it's really easy to do that in Old Testament books because the person and work of Christ isn't explicit. 
The danger is that we look to the example of Daniel and never continue looking to the finished work of Christ. So let me just go ahead and say a couple things about that. And if you were here last week, hopefully you can remember me saying something like what I'm about to say. So let this be our third point today that goes from the background of Daniel into our lives specifically. So we've already said that this book is written for everyone. And we've seen that God keeps his promises. The third point, you are not Daniel. I am not Daniel. We didn't grow up in the king's household. We're not nobility. We're not youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in a king's palace, able to learn a foreign language and literature and culture. Now, we may have one or two of those traits, or we may not have any. And so, yes, we should appreciate Daniel's example. Thank God that he raises up people who have skills in writing and teaching and speaking and learning. Praise God that he gives gifts to us, his children. But remember your sin. Remember how we are each prone to trust in ourselves and not in God. Guard your heart from thinking that you alone can handle the problems that come your way. We must guard ourselves from seeing ourselves as holy because of our actions. We are holy because of Christ in us. And from the inside out, we act upon the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's sovereignty. So you might ask, but how can I be united to Christ? How can I have Christ in me? And the Bible is clear through repentance and faith in the resurrected Jesus. Believing that though you are a sinner, Christ took the curse of God that you deserved and took it upon himself. He died for you, and he was raised from the dead to prove that your sin is not too great for him to bear, that your failures are not insurmountable or unforgivable. He freely offers you the holiness that you cannot attain by living a moral life. So today, right now, you can trust in him alone to save you from your sin and make you right with God, and he will give his Holy Spirit to you, to guide you, to comfort you, to strengthen you, to teach you. And he gives you his bride, the church, to come alongside you and build you up and equip you. The popular expression going around these days is, you be you. I could partially agree with that and say, you ain't Daniel, so you be you. But as a Christian, I'd say, Christ in you be you. Let that, let that be the you that comes out. Let that be the you that you strive toward. Christ in you be you. And saying all that, I also want to be fair to the holiness God calls us to as his children. God delights in us when we trust him. God delights to show himself strong on our behalf. Be strong and courageous in the strength of his might. Ask God for wisdom and he is happy to give it. Seek God and you will find him. And I would argue till I'm blue in the face that all of that begins with looking to God's word. It is here that we find Christ. It is here that we find wisdom. It is here that we encounter truth and understand it. So seek out God's word. Trust God's word and his work in your life. Teach God's word and proclaim the gospel. 
Daniel knew God's word because it had been recovered and it had been taught. He knew God's standards because it was modeled to him as he entered schooling under the care of King Josiah. Now that doesn't explain everything that we encounter in the life of Daniel. But it is no coincidence. It was the sovereign hand of God at work from the time Daniel was born. God sovereignly acted in Daniel's life, and God sovereignly acted in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Look again at verses 1 and 2 in our text. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Notice there it says, the Lord gave. Isaiah prophesied and said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Judah lost to Babylon, not because God was weak or inferior or incapable. Judah was conquered because their iniquities, their sins, had made a separation between them and their God. Their sins had hidden his face from them, and he would not hear. Though they were God's people, chosen by God and loved by God, and they had his word, they failed, and God scattered them. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. Don't you wish that were the case? No Duolingo necessary for us. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Why was, it, why was it so bad that all the people built that tower? Well, two reasons. Number one, because God had commanded Noah and his descendants to fill the earth. You can't fill the earth if you're all concentrated in one place. They did not obey God's command, so God scattered them. Number two, because their intention was to make a name for themselves. They were proud. They wanted everyone to know how great they were. Now what you may or may not have realized is that Babel is the same place as Babylon. In Genesis 11, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And coming back to our text, the second half of verse 2, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Babylon is a land of great pride, a beautiful city with a proud history and splendid architecture. 
but a city that was opposed to God, a nation where other gods were worshipped. The irony in this is that God actually gave his people in the beginning of this book of Daniel what they wanted. They wanted to serve other gods. So God sent them to a land where those other gods were worshipped. Be careful what you wish for. The sovereign hand of God may give you exactly what you want. And that's not always a good thing. Just read the second half of Romans chapter 1. A third chapter to read for homework. Or God may be doing things in your life that you just don't understand. So let me close by asking this. Are you struggling to trust in God's sovereignty because things haven't gone the way you hoped or planned? Perhaps you walked toward disobedience and got burned. Or maybe your well-intentioned plans hit the fan. Share that today with someone here. Let us pray with you, weep with you, sit with you. I just wondered what Daniel was thinking, his friends were thinking, when they were taken hundreds of miles away to a different land. May God make us a people who trust his sovereignty and encourage one another in the joy and the pain. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for being able to read it, to understand it, to see how it all flows together, how certain things lead to one another. God, we're, we're not left wondering because you have made things clear to us. But God, not everything is clear to us. What you're doing in our lives is not always It's not always clear. And so God, help us to be okay with that. Help us to not demand and expect answers from you as if we deserve them. But help us find us to be people who trust you in the good and the bad, in the known and the unknown. God, that's the people that we want to be. The people who who trust you, who trust in your sovereignty, who submit ourselves to you and to your watchful care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.